sermon. So uh, we're in our third week of this series that uh, we're, we're talking about building a better church, building a, a stronger church, the idea that we don't want to be just a good church, but a, but a great church, but not by the power of, of anything that we do, but by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. And uh, we're in our third week of this, and, and every redemption congregation is is doing this series. However, for the first time in the history of redemption, we are doing it in a locally contextualized way. So while many of the same topics are being uh, proclaimed uh, each week at all the different redemption campuses, uh, they're being proclaimed in different ways because of the context in the communities that we are in. So the vision uh, and the purpose and the mission of the Big R Redemption, and if you're new and you're not sure what I'm talking about, Redemption Church is one church but with six congregations, and we are the Arcadia congregation. Um, the, the Big R Redemption vision is that we are gospel-centered and we are outward-focused, uh, and, and that all of life is for all of Christ. And Arcadia, the way we're going to talk about that is that our our vision, our idea, where we want to go, where we are continuing to go, our our ultimate journey is that we want to know Christ and we want to love our community. So our our idea is is that we are knowing Christ and loving our community. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started the series by talking about uh, the idea that the church is supposed to be unified by the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit uh, in us, that the church is one body, but it has many different members, uh, many diverse members, but in that difference and in that diversity, we are unified in Christ. And then last week, we talked about the church's first mandate, which is the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of his word. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about prayer, which is our foundation as, as a church. And then week five, we'll talk about confession, which will lead us into talking about forgiving and also thankfulness. And then week six, we're going to talk about being called and sent. That really, you're not a church unless you also understand the outward-focused idea and that we are called and sent, that we are on a mission. Uh, Today, we are talking about generosity. And so uh, many of us thought it would be a good idea to just give a, a, a really quick flyover review of how 2012 actually ended for Redemption Church in terms of finances. Uh, Two highlights I want to give you. First of all, uh, again, uh, um, uh, emphasizing the idea that we are outward focused. Redemption overall, big big R Redemption, Redemption Arizona, uh, ended up uh, spending more than $600,000 of our uh, revenue, our income, our gifts that you gave, more than $600,000 on things outside of Redemption Church. So we are very interested in in making sure that we're outward focused, we're missionally minded. And so that's a really good thing. And then the other thing we we wanted to highlight was that not only did Arcadia do this, we, we were able to accomplish this, but uh, every one of the six congregations was able to accomplish this. Uh, we ended up actually over budget for income. We, we ended up with uh, more gifts, more ties, more offerings uh, than we had budgeted at the beginning of the year, and yet we were able to hold our expenses uh, at exactly what the budget was, actually a little bit less than budget. So... I want you to think about this now. This is a really good combination. Exceeding budget in revenue and holding the line on budget in, in expenses. Uh, when you do that in your household, you're very excited, right? And then you go out and spend the surplus. Well, we haven't spent the surplus. I, I want you to know, but that's, that's, that's a really good combination. And, and uh, I think it's indicative of, of, of a lot of things, but especially of how God is, is moving in the lives of all of the redemption congregations Uh, But it's also clearly indicative of the generosity uh, of the people that we have here, which is what we're going to talk about here. So here we go. Uh, You heard Eugene read the passage. We're going to spend some time in a passage that is usually not the first passage that people think about when it comes to generosity. But we are going to see that one of the things this passage clearly shows is generosity. But it's the generosity of God toward us. It is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you will turn there... Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that passage, and and then we're going to use that as kind of a a springboard to then go and make a lot of other application about generosity from other quarters of of God's Word. And there are two main points that we want you to to come away from this with this morning. These are the two things we want you to hear 
over and above everything else. Here's the first one. While most people tend to think that generosity only has to do with money, we need to understand that there are many currencies of generosity. There are many capitals that you and I possess that can be considered areas or currencies for generosity. So generosity is, is about more than just money. And then secondly, generosity is not an act, but an attitude. Generosity is not the behavior of a person, but it is the spirit of a person that results in generous behaviors. That's a really important distinction, too, that we want to uh, get into. And, and, and again, I want to mention this. I, for, for some people, when they come in and they hear that this is what the topic's going to be, it's going to be money, it's going to be generosity, it's going to be that kind of thing, uh, most people kind of go, okay, we're kind of going to be in for a scolding today. This is not a scolding today. Um, there are people in any context, we admit, who, who need to hear this and, and, and need to hear it because they probably have never heard this before. Uh, they still don't understand what generosity means. And so this will be new for some people. And in any context, uh, this needs to be proclaimed as new and fresh material for some people. But, but I also want to say that, that I have found in the year that I've been with Redemption, uh, I found that redemption in general, and specifically and especially in Arcadia, this church is just filled with lavishly generous people. Not just with money, but with every other currency that we can imagine when it comes to generosity. And I am privileged to be a part of that, and I'm glad to be a part of that, and we should celebrate that as well. Even so, it's still good to re be reminded of things that we already know. It's been said that uh, most of life is really more about being reminded than being taught new things, and that is true. Uh, especially as you progress through higher education, you find that really what you're doing is you're building a foundation uh, under which you're being reminded and then you're adding a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. That's kind of how we learn and so that's all good. So if this is new to you, wonderful. I'm, I'm happy for you. You get to hear this about this for the first time. If this isn't, this is a good reminder for you. So here we go. I want to read this little passage one more time. I, I just, I love to get the Word of God sinking deep into us, and then we'll spend a little time talking about it and unpacking it and, and understanding where we get this spirit of generosity from. So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's a very strong word there, and, and it'll come into play uh, in a minute. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, now understand, this, this parable is going to turn everybody's world upside down when they listen to it. Because the Pharisee in this context is usually the hero. The Pharisee is the, the God-fearing person, the God-following person, the good person, the religious person, the leader person, the person that everybody looked up to. And he's supposed to go into the temple to pray. This is part of his job. And it's normal to see the Pharisee and other Pharisees in the temple. And so this parable starts out, oh, this makes sense. Okay, here comes the Pharisee to the temple to pray. And the other, a tax collector. Now, now inside, if you were in, uh, in their context in the first century, inside of you at that point when you heard tax collector, you, you, you would start to boo on the inside of you. It's like this is the worst possible person. Now, some people say, well, this would be like an IRS agent. No, 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 no. Uh, we would compare the way they thought of tax collectors back then. This was the lowest, most depraved sinner that could possibly walk the face of the earth. This is somebody that we would, we would associate with, with drug dealers who are selling drugs to children. I mean, this is, this is the lowest possible form of humanity. And he's going into the temple to pray. And so people are going to look at him and say, what is he doing here? They would probably want to keep him out of the temple. So everybody's like, wow, there's some tension. Okay, we got the Pharisee, but then we've got this terrible, awful sinner going into pray. Now here comes the twist. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. The law called for you to fast once a year. By the way, fasting is going 24 hours without food. 
This guy's saying, I do that twice a week. And the idea behind fasting is it's a discipline that gets you closer to God, okay? And, and it's supposed to be a, a really good thing to do. I fasted, and it is. It does bring you closer to God. It helps you to focus on him. He's saying, I do that twice a week, not once a year. And I give tithes of all that I get, no matter what I get. Somebody hands me, uh, somebody hands me a gift of a plate of food. I'm going to take a portion of that somehow and make sure that I give it to uh, the temple. So he's a very good man. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his, his breast, beat his chest, saying, that is, that is a sign of mourning. That is a sign of deep grieving when you beat your chest like this. Uh, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. That word merciful is key here. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhaust, exalted, exhausted, exalted. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this Pharisee now. What's his issue? Well, his issue is pride and self-righteousness. And here's the problem with self-righteous, arrogant people and how they view God. Self-righteous people, such as this Pharisee, believe that God is their debtor. They believe that God actually owes them, and therefore, since people are below God, all people are also indebted to them, all people also owe them, all people are supposed to look up to them and wish to be like them as well. You have all, I, I have, we've all met self-righteous people, and you get that attitude. They are superior to everyone else, or so they think. And you see how this guy, not only the Pharisee, he not only exalts himself to God-like status, but he also maligns everybody else. And if that's your worldview, that God and everyone else somehow owe you, then you are not capable of being a generous person. You don't have any sort of spirit about you that will allow you to be generous. You might be able to behave in a way that could be interpreted by somebody who doesn't know you in the moment as generous, but you're not a generous person. You're probably doing it just like this Pharisee did his prayer. He went up there to make a show, to make an appearance for everybody, but he's really not a godly person. This is what Jesus is saying. And we know that he can't possibly be generous to other people because Jesus said at the beginning of the parable that the self-righteous treat others with contempt. If you have contempt for other people, you will not be a generous person. And listen to this. This is really important. That, that the Pharisee was free from all of the sin that he claimed to be free from is really not in dispute. It's okay that he's a moral man. We're not disputing that he was, he was a decent moral man by, by many standards. But what is in dispute is who gets credit for him being sin-free. Who is it that gets credit for this? Is it, is it the Pharisee, which therefore means that God somehow is indebted to him, or does God get the credit which means that the Pharisee should be humbly grateful, which he's not. And I know you might look at this and say, well, wait a minute, at the very beginning of his prayer, and I would put prayer in quotations, it's hardly a prayer, it's just him telling God how marvelous he is and how God ought to be thankful that, that he's in his camp. But at the beginning of the prayer, he says, I thank you, God. Those of you that, well, see, he was thankful. He was, he was demonstrating. The Pharisee's opening, I thank you, is really just a clause of formality. You go back and study these things. It's nothing more than a clause of formality. It's not a genuine acknowledgement of gratitude. He only says this because he's supposed to. This is lip service that the Pharisee is giving. The prayer of the Pharisee is literally telling God, I really don't have anything that I need, and I certainly don't need you or anything that you have that you could give me. Really? Really? A person who has absolutely nothing of need that God could give them? That's essentially what the Pharisee is saying. Of the Pharisee, Matthew Henry writes this, There is not one word of true prayer in all that the Pharisee said. He went up to the temple to pray, but forgot his errand. 
He was so full of himself and his own goodness that he thought he had need of nothing, not even the grace of God, which it seems he did not even think it worth asking for. Can you imagine not even think, you're so good, you don't even have to ask God for his grace. Wow. Wow. Pharisee does not think he needs anything from God, and therefore he has no ability to recognize that God is generous. And if he has no ability to recognize that God is generous, he has no ability to be shaped by God's generosity. And that's really the crux of the matter here. The Pharisee went up to publicly pray in order to make an appearance. That's really essentially what he did. That's all. This is in contrast to the tax collector, the sinner, who came to humbly make a request. There's a big difference. So now let's take a a minute to assess the tax collector. While the Pharisee came to explain why God was indebted to him, the tax collector understands that he is indebted to God, and so he prays for mercy. Literally, he prays for the lavish and generous forgiveness of God. Generous... Because to forgive means to incur the cost. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about forgiveness this way, but when we forgive somebody, we literally endure and incur whatever it is that we lost because of the other person and what they have done to us. Whatever it is that we've lost. Money, reputation, a feeling of safety, Trust, relationship, community, whatever it is that we feel we lost. When we forgive somebody, essentially what we're doing is we're saying, okay, I will bear the cost of that. That's what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Understand that. He bore the cost of our sin on the cross. He took that himself. The penalty, the cost, everything about that. And he did it willingly and generously. And here's the thing about the tax collector. He knows who he is and what he's done. He knows that he is a sinner, but he also understands who God is and what God's character is and that he can go to God and ask for his generosity because he is a generous God, which God willingly and lavishly extends. The tax collector is the one who went home justified, understand. I, Howard Marshall, who wrote a great Uh, commentary on the book of Luke writes this. Here's what the tax collector understands. God offers his mercy, forgiveness, and salvation to those who would normally be regarded as excluded from it. The tax collector says, justice condemns me, but a generous God will have mercy on me. By the way, that's true of you and me too. He will have mercy on us. Justice condemns you and I. Even if we've only sinned once in our whole lives, which is not even possible, but even if we've only sinned once, justice condemns us, but we stand before God in Jesus Christ and we've been given His lavish and generous forgiveness, love, and mercy. And He's glad to do it. The scholars say that the key to this is that word translated mercy in verse 13. This word is only used twice in the new, this form of this word, this, uh, other words are translated mercy, but this particular one is only used twice. It's haliskamai, and it literally means full of generous compassion. And we're going to see later on uh, its only other use in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2. So, so the, the tax collector says, have mercy on me. Show your generous compassion to me, please, God. So here's the key that we're getting at. The reason that you and I can be generous is because God was first generous to us. We can love because God first loved us. We can also be generous because God was first generous towards us. We have experienced his generosity toward us through Jesus. He has made us rich with mercy and forgiveness, with generous compassion. And this is a generosity of spirit. It's a generosity that's that's been experienced from God and therefore we have the ability to manifest it ourselves it's it's not a generosity born of guilt or persuasion but rather it's a generosity born of core value and experience and conviction i'll say it this way there's really no point in a shepherd a pastor 
trying to cajole generous behavior through guilt and clever rhetoric, when the reality is we truly cannot have a generous spirit until we have encountered and received the generous spirit of God. And that is accomplished by knowing God the way the tax collector knew God, as a recipient of God's grace, rather than the way the Pharisee knew God. Paul has a marvelous understanding of this in his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, the first seven uh, verses. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read it to you. This is a great understanding of God's generosity. He gives us the good news here. The salvation of, of God for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But before He gives us the good news, He has to give us the bad news as well. No reason for the good news if there isn't first bad news. But here's what he writes to the church in Ephesus and to us today. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, the world was your Savior. The world was, was the thing that you put your security in, your identity in, that you trusted. Following the prince of the power of the air, that would be Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is, this is I know, this is tough stuff. Some of you might be sitting there going, I, you know, I don't, I don't follow Jesus, but I'm, I certainly don't follow Satan. That's how clever Satan is. It really is. If you're not following Jesus, Paul is saying you are, by default, following Satan. And, and, and this idea that everyone's just the children of God, that is dispelled right here by Paul. Not everyone is a children of God. He says here, sons of disobedience. Later he's going to say children of wrath. If you're not in Christ, that's who you are or who you once were. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That we're born into the world as children of wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. Like the rest of mankind, Verse 4, but God. I love those two words because there's always good stuff after but God. And this is really good. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You hear all those words describing His, his mercy and His grace and His love. Those are words that indicate generosity. It's because God is generous to us that He has lifted us out of of, of being children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience, and he has made us alive. We, he has made us in, uh, part of the inheritance of God that Peter talks about in his first letter. Uh, of Ephesians chapter 2, here's what one person writes. If we really knew our inheritance from God, we would not be so close-fisted with our own generosity. So as we've been saying, this, gener this generosity that we are speaking of is not just a generosity of, of money, but rather it's a generosity of spirit. It, it's an attitude, it's a worldview, it's a lifestyle, it's existential, it's something that infects everything that we do, and it's what makes good churches great, understanding generosity. As Tim Keller says, generosity has many currencies. While money is one of the currencies, there are also currencies of things like time, relationship, empathy, service, commitment, hospitality, and access, and many, many others. Those are just a few that, that we're going to name. And, and you need to know, we're going to take a moment in a few minutes to talk a little bit about money because it is one of the currencies. But we need to understand that people can give a lot of money and still not have a spirit of generosity. That happens all the time. People can give a lot of money but still not have a truly generous spirit. That's what Luke 21, verses 1 through 3 is all about. Luke writes, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, about a penny. And he said to, to his disciples who were sitting there, he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. 
It's not that Jesus didn't appreciate the money that the rich were giving and, or that the temple didn't necessarily uh, need the money. What he was commenting on was the capacity behind the gift and the indication of a generous spirit based on that capacity. He's simply saying, listen, it's costing that widow a lot more to give that pittance than it did for the rich people to give their larger sums. Therefore, she may be the one that has the best understanding of the other currencies of generosity as well. As a result, he's saying she's the one who is probably really generous because she gave out of her need while the rich were giving out of their abundance. So she had an understanding probably of the other currencies. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like time, for instance. And I know, I, I, I tell you, I, I feel pressed for time. I, just the older I get, I thought it was going to get better the older I got. I'd have more time. I have less now. Um, I... I know that this might be the most sacrificial currency with which we could practice generosity. But it is possible that I, I've seen this happen, and, and Keller talks about this too. Some people will give their money in an effort to be able to say, I don't, I've done everything I'm going to do, and now I'm not going to give my time either. Okay? Are, are you stingy with your time? Or are you generous with your time? How about relationships? Some people find, in fact, I think all people find that some relationships can be exhausting, demanding, and costly. It's true. But people who grasp a cost, a, the cost of God's relationship with them are also generous with their relationship and hospitality. Is it easy? No. Was it easy for God to do what he did for us? Is it easy for God to be in relationship with us? Speaking personally, I can say no, it's not easy to be in a relationship with me. How about empathy? I, I do conflict resolution. Or I should say I try to do conflict resolution. It's interesting, when two people are in conflict, it's kind of like talking to an addict. Uh, if the addict really isn't interested in getting well, there isn't anything anybody really can do for the addict. If you're talking to two people in conflict, if there's at least one of them who really doesn't want to end the conflict or be reasonable, you're not going to be able to end the conflict. And so I say I try to do conflict resolution, and, and things are brought to me uh, quite often. This I will say about conflict resolution. Those who are generous with empathy, and empathy is the idea that you are trying to put yourself in the other person's position and look at everything from their perspective. That's what empathy is. You try to put yourself in their position, in their place, and look at everything from their perspective. Those who are generous with empathy, they have much more success in healthy conflict resolution than those who are not generous with empathy. If you're in a relationship, a, a romantic relationship, a marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, if, if you're in a, a work relationship, if you're in a friendship, certain family members or whatever, understand that things are going to go a little bit better if you're generous with your empathy. And that really is a spiritual issue. One more, commitment. Let's just admit it. Commitment in our culture may be the least practiced currency of generosity that there is. Just might be. And now, it's going to get uncomfortable for some of you for just a minute. Just giving you a little disclaimer there. Do you realize... That sex without marriage is often, very often, when one person says, I want you to be generous with your body and with your intimacy, while at the same time, I am going to be stingy with my life and my commitment. Ever thought about it that way? How's that working for some of you? And I know some of you right now are going, man, pastor is messing with my game. Yeah, that's my point. Are you saying that you're willing to accept the generosity of God, sacrificing his son so that you can have mercy, forgiveness, and life, and as a result, you can't even commit yourself to one person in marriage, but you're willing to have commitment-free sex with them? Is that what you're saying? And listen, I'm not a prude. I, I feel like sometimes I have to tweet that. I'm not a prude, okay? I just know firsthand how damaging and destructive commitment-free sex can be. I know that in the short term, it's awesome. I get that. 
Long term, it's not so awesome. It's one of the most destructive things that can happen. And I will tell you that commitment by the power and mercy of God in your life is really the answer to that dysfunction. You see, churches with a vision, churches that understand their purpose, they are churches that are made up that ha of people that have a spirit of generosity. People who not only lavishly and sacrificially give their money to further the gospel, but also lavishly and sacrificially give their time and their relationship, their hospitality, their empathy, their service, their commitment, because they truly understand what God has done for them. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says about and this is, this is the author talking about Jesus, and we have that other use of the word holiskamai in this passage here. He says about Jesus, For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Much of what Hebrews is trying to point out is that because Jesus came to be like us, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he is the best possible priest and savior that we could, we could ever have because he gets it. He knows what it's like to be us. He, he knows our temptations and our challenges and our problems. And so since he understands us, he has the ability to be generous to us, and he is generous to us. He's willing to generously sacrifice his life for ours because he knows us, because he gets it. Jesus is a merciful high priest and savior. And mind-boggling, when you really think about it, he made propitiation for us. The word propitiation... It means to pay the penalty on behalf of another. Have you ever paid the penalty on behalf of another? Somebody else does something completely wrong and you're the one that goes and pays the debt. Have you ever done that? That's costly. That is sacrificial. And that is generous. And that's actually the other use of the word holiskamai in that passage is he made propitiation. He is generously compassionate to us. And that brings us to what many believe is the quintessential passage in Scripture on the generosity of God toward us. If you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, Paul in this passage is talking about money in particular, but then he expands the idea to just being generous in general with every currency that we have. He does it in chapter 8 and he does it in chapter 9 as, as well. He says, starting in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, you Corinthians, you're in a city that is rich. You're in a city that has not had an adverse uh, economy the way the rest of Macedonia has had. And yet all these other cities, Philippi, Ephesus, in the area are giving out of their poverty. They're giving out of their adversity. And they are doing it joyfully and generously. And yet you are stingily hanging on to what you have. If anybody should be giving a lot, it's you guys in Corinth. He's sort of giving them a little bit of a, a comparison. He's kind of sticking it to them. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They weren't manipulated into it. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here they were desperately poor in very bad economic times and they're begging Paul, we want to give more, we want to give more. And he's telling the, the Corinthians about this. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord... And then by the will of God to us. So in other words, they understood that they understood who God is. This is why they are generous. Verse 6, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in, your love, and in our love for you, 
see that you also excel in this act of grace. So he's saying, you guys excel in everything, but you're really struggling in this one little area here, almost as a cover for the fact that you're not doing well here. And then the, 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 really the punchline verses, verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, <clears throat> so, that, so that by his poverty might become rich. So he was rich, Jesus. And for our sake, he decided to become poor. He came down here and hung out with us, okay? I know that damages some of your self-esteem. Well, Jesus got to be with humans. That ought to be pretty good. Well, he's God, so it was a little tough for him at times. And then they killed him, okay? He's saying he became poor just so that you and I could be rich. This is his lavish generosity. Paul's point is the same point we've been making all morning. That we've been made rich in Christ because of his lavish generosity in the first place. Therefore, we have far more ability and capacity to be generous than we ever dreamed. And the truth of the matter is that the reason Paul brings this up when talking about money is because money really is the most difficult area that you and I have when it comes to willingly and generously separate ourselves from our currencies. It really is the most difficult area. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he was talking about money. Money really does expose our hearts. So let me just finish by talking a little bit about that. Admittedly, when it comes to money, one of the toughest things that we have to break through is the idea that somehow money gives us security. If we were truthful with ourselves, we would, we would think and we would expect that, that money is really where we can be most secure in life. And I will tell you that if that were true, about half of my pastoral counseling time would be eliminated. If that were true, that money gives security, wouldn't do half the pastoral counseling that I need to do. I meet with a lot of people who had money at one time, and as a result, they didn't think they needed God. But then something happened. Something that they had no control over, something that came out of left field, something that a, a really good decision or a different decision would not have been able to mitigate or change or whatsoever, and poof, it's gone. And now they're realizing that genuine security doesn't exist in money. There's a parable exactly like this in the Gospel of Luke, by the way. Scripture teaches don't place your security in money because that makes money an idol. And in case you're wondering, God's kind of down on idols. And here's, here it is. It's right here in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You cannot gain security through wealth. And then he told him this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, he went to himself for counsel. That's a problem right there. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my, all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. That is strong language. You fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I see the modern day version of this all the time. It happens. And listen, I know this is a process. And I know that although I'm called to teach this, I know that ultimately I need to leave this up to you and God. You guys will work this out. You and God will work this out. The whole giving thing. You will. I have confidence in, in, in God in that. And, and the reason I do is because I know this from my own experience. So I just want to I want to spend a little bit of time sharing my own experience in this. In the late 1980s, God saved me at North Phoenix Baptist Church. I started going to church every week. It was being led by Richard Jackson, and he took attendance, even though there were 10,000 people there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, if you know Richard, that's funny. Anyway, late 1980s, I was a single guy making about $40,000 a year. Single guy, late 1980s, $40,000 a year. I could have been a pretty big giver. I could have been a pretty lavish giver. And I thought I was. Every other week, 
I would carry to church a check for $15. Big stuff. 30 a month, 360 a year for those of you doing the math. Okay? Now, it's funny because no one ever pressed me on this. No, no human being, that is. No, I never had a meeting with somebody. Nobody from the church ever sat down with me over a cup of coffee and said, I've been looking over your giving report, and I suspect you make more than what this indicates. Nobody did that. No human being. No human being worked on me. But God started working on me. It was interesting. He worked on me through prayer, through the Word of God, through just reading the Bible, and through, and through other people who, who didn't know that they were being used by God to work on me. That's the interesting part. So the next thing you know, for whatever reason, I felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me that I needed to look at my paycheck and I needed to start giving off of the paycheck. That I needed to do that 10% thing, you know, just move the decimal over. And that was what I had. But of, of course, it was on the net because, you know, God understands the government and they're taking all this money and it's not fair. So it was on the net, okay? But you, you, see, how, you see how the Spirit of God works with us sometimes? It's just like, okay, we're just going to do this incrementally. I didn't know I was being incrementalized, but I was, that's kind of what was happening. So I started giving off the net. I'm a net giver. But there was still this sort of discontent. And it wasn't by, it, 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 was, it was like this God-induced discontent. Finally, I realized that taxes are really not first fruits. That giving to God is first fruits. So I started giving on the gross. But that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the end of the story. When God really made his breakthrough with me was when, when he came to me and he said, listen, this is a grace thing. And I have been gracious to you, generously gracious to you. And so, really, how you should be responding is with grace. And so, why don't you just give as you're led to give and quit looking at figures and numbers and just trust the work of the Spirit in your life. And so, that's what I've been doing ever since. That's what Jackie and I do. I, I, I really, I, I've never figured out any percentages. Uh, I can tell you that we... We give more every year because God just leads us and he, and he leads us in a lifestyle that, that hopefully is generous and lavish. And it's not just to the church. There's, there's other things that we, we, we give to. That's where we are now. And, and again, I am not saying this because, because I'm not saying this because I'm standing here going, I do this so you need to do it too. Th that would be human manipulation. I'm just using my story as a testimony and allowing God will use it in any way he wants to. I believe that there are some of you in this room right now that the Holy Spirit will leave you alone with this story because you're really not ready for that yet. I believe that I, just, just based on my own experience and what I've learned from the grace and generosity of God, that He'll work on you in His own time. And it'll be just right for you. And it might be right now, but it might not be right now. I remember when Richard Jackson actually said said one day from the front, he said, try two, meaning try 2%. If you're not giving, try two, try 2%. It was like, wow, I mean, that's like, that's like a graceful thing to say, not a law-bound thing to say. That's how God did it with me. He took things like, just let me give you a few other things that he took. I remember one day listening to somebody teach, and, and the person said, and I've heard this many times since, but the first time it hit me right between the eyes. The question is, the question isn't, how much does God take? Because a lot of us think, well, he takes 10%. Man, that's a lot. He takes 10%. The question isn't how much he takes, but how much do we get to keep? 90. Oh, that's pretty good. Then I heard this one. Oh, man, this is so true. You'll miss the money you wasted, but you'll never miss the money you gave. That's true. I could probably line list for you over the last 30 years all the money I've, listed, I've, I've wasted. It's ugly because I remember that and I miss it. I, I, I couldn't do that with the money I've given. 2 Corinthians, just a little bit later, we read that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 passage. Here is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this, The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You hear this? As he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion... For God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, do you see how Paul takes this sufficiency of God, the generosity of God in us, and he applies it in the, in the area of giving money, but then he expands it to all of our works. Generosity has many currencies, and so it's a generosity of spirit. Finally, Andy Stanley said this once, I remember, and, and and it's true. He says, giving extravagantly leaks into the other areas of our life. We become generous with other forms of our capital. Listen, uh, as I wrap up, I, I just want to say, we teach this not because we want something from you, but we teach it because we want something for you. Dave Ramsey once said, and it's true, living a life with a generous spirit is the most fun you will ever have. Let me pray. Sean will come up and lead us in our time of uh, reflection and response. God, thank you for your generosity to us. You love us. You show us mercy and grace. You forgive us through your son, Jesus Christ. He has made propitiation for us. These are all amazing things. And we thank you for it. And we, we celebrate that. And so God, as we celebrate that, we just ask that you would continue to work in our lives and on our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Friends, I'll leave you.